I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. I'm Jordan, and today we're going to talk about Neil Young and Leonard Skinner. There's a lot to unpack here because it's so easy to mischaracterize this feud because it makes for such a great story, you know? I mean, there's a hippie from Canada, that land of draft dodgers and socialized health care. He's waging a war of words with loud and proud rebels from the American South. It, it, it's, it's such a good, like, you know, black and white feud. But the truth is a lot murkier. It's a lot grayer. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of that quote from Kanye West. Love your haters. They're your biggest fans. I think in this case, there's some truth to that. You know, Neil and Leonard Skinner were, were friendly rivals who became figureheads for two really opposing demographics. But their personal relationships were pretty civil, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, this... Rivalry is the defining example of something I wrote about in my book about music beefs, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, which is how people take pop cultural rivalries and implant them with their own meanings. Like, you write about how Neil Young loved Leonard Skinner and Ronnie Van Zant, who wrote the lyrics to Sweet Home Alabama, which is a song we're going to be talking about a lot in this episode. He was a huge Neil Young fan. I mean, Ronnie Van Zant tragically died in a plane crash, of course, and he was buried in a Neil Young Tonight's the Night t-shirt. That's how big of a fan he was. Uh, But this story, as you said, it's so perfectly suited for the ongoing culture war in this country that it's easy to reduce these guys down to convenient stereotypes. If you're conservative, you can cheer for Leonard Skinner. If you're liberal, you can cheer for Neil Young. And like so many things in this country, it turns into this simplistic binary that obscures a story that I think is a lot more nuanced and complicated and ultimately more interesting than maybe it's given credit for. So... I'm really excited to dive into this, so let's get into this mess. So the, I hesitate to even call it a feud, the the disagreement stems from Neil Young's song Southern Man, which is a track on his 1970 album After the Gold Rush. Um, Brilliant record. Oh, incredible record, incredible song. It equates the South's sort of racist past with contemporary attitudes, which Neil, at that point, felt hadn't really progressed much since the Civil War. He he sings, Southern change gonna come at last. Now your crosses are burning fast. Southern man, I saw cotton and I saw black. Tall white mansions and little shacks. Southern man, when will you pay them back? I heard screaming and bullwicks cracking. How long, how long? Some pretty inflammatory lyrics there. He, he had a... Um, Liner notes on his anthology album, Decade, he described the song as, uh, could have been written on a civil rights march after stopping off to watch Gone with the Wind at a local theater. <laughs> but I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. Very great, typical, cryptic Neil. Yeah, yeah, I've got to say, I love the album After the Gold Rush. I'm a huge Neil Young fan. 
The song Southern Man is not my favorite Neil Young track. I, I remember I read an interview with Randy Newman once where he talked about this song, and he said that for him, Neil Young's political songs, with maybe the exception of Ohio, like are not his favorite because he feels like Neil doesn't know enough, basically, which is kind of a, a condescending thing to say about Neil Young, but I think ultimately it's true. I mean, because especially for someone like Randy Newman, who's this very sort of you know, smart satirist wrote so many great songs, especially about the American South, like the Rednecks. album. Good, yeah, the song Rednecks from the album Good Old Boys. It's all about that. It's a much more sophisticated look at the culture than I think Southern Man is. Um, because Southern Man, it, it is like a straw man song. And it's very <laughs> broad, talking about the South just being this hellscape of racism. And it's funny to me because, like, Neil Young was living in Los Angeles at this time. And, like, there were a lot of riots in Los Angeles around, you know, in the late 60s as well. I mean, like, Los Angeles is not a city that, like, has... It was immune to that. Exactly. There's, there's been racism all over the country, including Los Angeles. He could have called it California Man if he wanted to, you know. Uh, but it was easier to project that onto Southern Man. And I think Neil really went too far in this regard when he wrote the song Alabama. Mm. which is a track from the record Harvest, which is the record after after the Gold Rush. Again, Harvest, brilliant record, Heart of Gold, Old Man, Needle and the Damage Done, so many classic songs on that record. But uh, on Alabama, he's writing about the South as basically, again, like this hellscape of racism where the Ku Klux Klan is just terrorizing black people, you know, in every town, every Southern person is like this. And I feel like the attitude that Neil takes in that song it is this sort of condescending, liberal, paternalistic attitude that I think sometimes Northerners take toward people in the South. Like, hey, this is your problem. You know, what's your deal? Or deal like, with why, it. Yeah, why can't you deal with it? When really, it's like, maybe you should deal with your own issues and look in the mirror here. Like, this is, maybe you're projecting the issues that exist everywhere onto this group of people uh, a little too much. And I feel like that ultimately was the spark that caused Ronnie Van Zant to react the way that he did. Right. I mean, he he hears Neil's songs. He's a big Neil Young fan. He hears these songs, and he he's not thrilled. And he's not actually from Alabama. He's native in Jacksonville, Florida. But but he's holding fast to his southern roots. And the band had recorded in their early career on the uh, Muscle Shoals Studios and played gigs along the Gulf Coast. So they they had a lot of fond memories of Alabama. And he thought that Neil's criticism was, you know a gross generalization that really wasn't that far off from the bigotry that Neil was supposedly criticizing in his music. You know, from Ronnie's point of view, he felt that Neil was lumping in good, honest people with Klansmen and that the comparison between slave owners and modern Southern men, Southern men was really unfair. I think Ronnie gave an interview to Rolling Stone in 1975 and he said, we thought Neil was shooting all the ducks in order to kill one or two. We're Southern rebels, but more than that, we know the difference between right and wrong. So he responded right. with, the yeah, song the Kid Rock sampled. <laughs> exactly. And it's horrible. That's another, that's just one piece of baggage of many pieces of baggage that have been attached to Leonard Skinner <laughs> you know, over the past, you know, 40 years. Uh, you know, yeah, Sweet Home Alabama is now the Kid Rock song, unfortunately, for a new generation of people. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Leonard Skinner and, you know, they are now this caricature of like a Southern rock band. They're essentially like the house band for the Republican National Convention now. And I feel like people are so used to looking at them in a certain way, especially since, you know, in the 70s, they unapologetically flew the Confederate flag. And that remained a part of their shows for a long time. And obviously, no one's going to defend the Confederate flag now. But I think that when it comes to what the band was like when Ronnie Van Zant was alive, and I think the song... Sweet Home Alabama specifically, you know, I feel like as much as Ronnie Van Zant rebelled against Neil Young lumping all Southerners into this sort of like racist caricature, I feel like Ronnie Van Zant himself has been a victim of that after he died. That when we think about Leonard Skinner, which was a band that, you know, Ronnie was the focal point of, yeah, we just think of them as being this sort of reactionary right-wing band. And Sweet Home Alabama becomes a rallying cry for a lot of the people who support that caricature of Leonard Skinner. Um, and as that song pertains to Neil Young, of course, the famous line in the song is, well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her, her referring to the South. Uh, well, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember a Southern man don't need him around anyhow. So if you just look at that song at face value, it's like what? 
the Southern guy sticking it to the Northern liberal, right? I mean, it's like, yes, we're going to rise again. We're going to stick it to these people who are judging us. But the reality is, is that like, as much as he was annoyed by what Neil Young wrote in those songs, I mean, he was still a Neil Young fan. And he also, I think, had his tongue in cheek more than like people now give him credit for. I, I read an interview that he did with Cameron Crowe in the mid-70s, and he called it a joke song. And there's that line in the song where they talk about George Wallace. You know, George Wallace is the governor. And I think a lot of people hear that part of the song and they think it's like an endorsement of George Wallace. But right after he says that, there's that boo, boo, boo backing vocal, which I feel like was intended as sort of like an ironic stab. Like, we're not actually endorsing George Wallace. We think this guy's a bozo. But this, you know, we're we're sort of having fun with this idea of like the Southern caricature that Neil Young was singing about. Exactly. I mean, well, George Wallace, important to to note, you know, noted segregationist, famously awful stood man. on, awful man, you know, segregation uh, now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Uh, history is not look kindly upon this man, it's fair to say. So the boo-hoo-hoo part has been, it's funny, it's been embraced by both sides. For liberals listening to the song, they think that's sort of the, the part that's undercutting the, uh, in Birmingham, we love the governor part. And then there's still people on the more conservative side who think that the it's boo-hoo-hoo as in like a mocking take of liberals protesting him. Like, oh, wow, you know, you don't like him too bad. So it's it's funny how it's such a, an inkblot test for just, a, you know, one line in a song, all these different takes on it. I mean, don't you, I mean, what's your take on this song? I mean, I, I, because there's the lyrics part of it, which I think is problematic for a lot of people. What also I think adds another dimension to this song is that musically, I feel like pretty inarguably, like it kicks ass. Like this yeah. is a kick-ass song. Right. Like the lick comes on, it has a great groove to Turn it. it I think I think musically it takes Southern Man to the cleaners. I mean, I think it's a much better song than Southern Man. And I think even Neil Young quickly conceded that, as we'll get to later in this episode. It's oh, such a good time party song, but then it has these lyrical elements that it reminds me in a way of the, the Merle Haggard song, Okie from Skokie, which is, I think, a similar song where I think Merle Haggard wrote that as like a satirical song about Southern rednecks, but like Southern rednecks also embraced it at face value. And it's always had this dual life in how people talk about it. Like, wh- what are your feelings about so- uh, Sweet Home Alabama? I mean, I think that band members have, have taken different stances on it over the years. I think Ronnie Van Zant, because not only is the lyricist, but he didn't have a lot of time to change his outlook on the song because he only died, I think, three years later. He said that, you know, the lyrics about the governor of Alabama were misunderstood, he said in an interview. I think it was the Rolling Stone interview in 1975. Uh, the general public didn't notice the words boo, boo, boo after that particular line, and the media picked up only on the reference of people loving the governor. Uh, he later said that Wallace and I have very little in common. I don't like what he says about black people. Um, there was a uh, Showtime documentary about Leonard Skinner uh, a couple of years ago, and Gary Rossington made a similar statement. He said, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations. I'm sure if you ask the other guys who are not with us anymore that are up in rock and roll heaven, they'd have a different version of the story. But, you know, it's satire. That seems to be the general consensus of that, is that the song is, is nuanced satire, like you said, that is um, using Birmingham as the city that they're actually referencing the song is really interesting too because Birmingham famously didn't love the governor. They they actually didn't vote for him and I think Wallace tried to withhold funds for a, a highway that was being built through the town for years. So even just knowing a little bit of the backstory of like the history of Birmingham, it, it, that's a very telling city that they chose to use in that song. Well, and, and you made this observation in our in our notes for this episode and I thought it was a pretty smart comparison. Calling back to our Billy Corgan Stephen Malkmus episode and the song Range Life, that pavement song about, you know, dissing, smashing pumpkins, essentially. And how Stephen Malkmus, when he wrote that song, it was sort of like this tossed off jokey song that he probably didn't anticipate becoming as much of a flashpoint as it did. And you made the comparison between that song and Sweet Home Alabama, which I think kind of makes sense. I, I wonder to what degree they knew that this was going to become such a rock anthem. I mean, obviously they didn't know that at the time. I mean, Leonard Skinner was still like a like a relatively young band. They put out their first record in 73, pronounced Leonard Skinner, which I think is like one of the great rock debuts of all time. Pretty awesome record. Freebirds on there, Simple Man, lots of hits. And then Second Helping was their second record. 
And in a way, Sweet Home Alabama, it seems like a fluky hit. You know, like there really wasn't, I think, an expectation that Leonard Skinner was going to have pop hits. But I think this song, it just captured the zeitgeist in a way that like they probably didn't really anticipate. Right. In the same way that Malcolmus wrote that line about smashing pumpkins in the studio basically to make the other bandmates laugh. That's what Van, Dan- Van Zant later said about the uh, the Neil Young stuff. He said, you know, that's they said we laugh like hell. He said, isn't that funny? We love Neil Young. We love his music. We think he'll be in on the joke. You know, if everybody even hears this, which is kind of iffy, because at that point, their debut album peaked at like number 27 or something. I mean, they were like, you know, a C-list Allman Brothers, right? Like they weren't exactly blowing up the charts here and i i, almost, I mean i think they were i think they were better regarded than that i mean i mean they were opening like for the who and like they, they had some pre, and i think people like that first record but you know it's one thing to be like a good time southern rock band and it's another to like actually have like a top 10 hit right and if you look at like what else was on the charts at that time i mean there's not a whole lot of precedence for like sweet a song like sweet home alabama having that kind of success i mean the allman brothers um, you know, I think had some hits like from the Brothers and Sisters record, which was before that. But um, and there was some tension, I think, ultimately between Skinner and Almond Brothers because the Almond Brothers were always this more progressive band, um, whereas Skinner, I think, leaned more into the good old boy image and flew the flag. I mean, flew the Confederate flag. I mean, the Almond Brothers never did that, but Leonard Skinner did. And I don't know. It, it's so interesting. To me, Ronnie Van Zandt is a really interesting character because the Confederate flag stuff is so weird to me that he would propagate that. I mean, I, I really think that at the time that was maybe looked at as this like sort of rebellious thing. You know, like we're we're, we're sort of sticking it to like the larger system by by flying this flag. I, I, I think that was maybe the rationalization for it, which that kind of makes sense in like the context of his worldview because like he was like a progressive guy like he campa- he campaigned for Jimmy Carter he wrote a a gun control song called Saturday Night Special Great which is a very song. which is really interesting when you look at and we'll get into that like Leonard Skinner's later history you know like where uh I wonder if they changed the lyrics to that song like when they performed it after Ronnie died because they definitely were not pro-gun control later on in their career. I mean, again, I think this speaks to what we were talking about before, about how if you want to reduce these players into sort of simplistic binaries, it's really hard. I mean, I I, I think it's, I think Leonard Skinner's a complicated band, and, and, and so is Neil Young in a lot of ways. And they had a really complicated relationship to flying that flag. Even back in the 70s, there were interviews Ronnie gave where he was saying, oh yeah, that was MCA, the record company's idea to kind of have us do that. Uh, and so he kind of, even at the time, tried to distance himself from it, I think, too. Now, what's interesting to me is that, like, okay, Leonard Skinner, they put out the song Sweet Home Alabama. I guess we can call it a diss track. You know, it's sort of a, <laughs> it's calling out Neil Young. And, like, Neil Young essentially agrees with Leonard Skinner. I mean, he doesn't fire back. He actually feels like they have a point, And he goes on to sort of dismiss his own songs. Yeah, oh yeah. In later years, I think it was Southern Man. He he wrote in his memoir. He said Alabama richly deserved. Oh no, sorry, it was the song Alabama. He said Alabama richly deserved the shot Leonard Skinner gave me with their great record. I don't like my words when I listen to it today. They're accusatory and condescending, not fully thought out, too easy to misconstrue. Basically, what Randy Newman said. Right, and it's just interesting to me that like Neil Young like took it that way, because. Uh, you would think, I mean, I think it really speaks to like what kind of person Neil Young is too, that like he wouldn't just be a reactionary and say, well, I'm going to write a song about how Leonard Skinner sucks and I'm going to put it on, on the beach. Um, and it was almost like he like learned a lesson from, from, uh, Ronnie Van Zandt. Yeah. He probably appreciated that sense of like, you know, playing his own game and well being that direct lyrically. He probably, yeah, no, I, I can't think of anybody else who would have, like, you know, done that to him, aside from maybe, like, Crosby or Stills. And then, you know, I, I feel like when Neil Young was so cool about it, I mean, that just endeared Ronnie Van Zandt even more to him, right? I mean, because, like, like we said, he was, like, a huge Neil Young fan, and when he saw that Neil Young didn't get pissed at him, it was like, oh, wow, this guy's even cooler than I thought he was. 
Oh, yeah. You see all those concerts in like the mid to late 70s. He's wearing the Tonight's the Night shirt. I mean, even look at the Street Survivor cover. He's wearing his, his favorite Tonight's the Night Neil Young shirt. Yeah, I mean, like, and he gave a bunch of interviews, too, like where he was talking. I mean, it seemed like he took great pains to tell journalists in the moment that, like, I actually love Neil Young. I- I'm not mad at Neil Young. You know, I'm not propagating this as, you know, some sort of North versus South battle. Because, I mean, there's so many quotes, right, Like where he's talking about, like, how much he loves Neil Young. Oh, yeah. Neil Young is amazing, wonderful, a superstar. You know, I mean, that's not exactly fighting words. Right. So, like, as you said, like, Ronnie Van Zant, they end up making the, the album Street Survivors. That's like, the last Leonard Skinner record with the original lineup. But, yeah, and he's wearing a Neil Young shirt on the cover of that record. And then, sadly, he tragically dies in 1977 and like one of the most famous plane crashes in rock history and didn't Neil Young like play Sweet Home Alabama as a tribute like after he died yeah he was playing I think his song Alabama and then he he weaved in Sweet Home Alabama in in tribute and then I don't think he ever played the song Alabama again after that night I think that was the the last time I remember too like when I was writing my book um about this rivalry, I think I looked up Southern Man, uh, just going through playlists, and I feel like he doesn't play that song very much either anymore, um, which is kind of a surprise because that's still like one of the big songs that you hear by Neil Young on the radio, because right? it was like a pretty big, I think, FM radio hit at the time, and it's like one of the classic rock staples, I think, for Neil Young. Um, but he doesn't play it either. And I, I just wonder, like, would he have come to that realization without Sweet Home Alabama? You know, or was did it take, like, this great rock song to kind of put Neil in his place and decide that he didn't want to play that anymore? Mm. I Yeah, I don't know. I think that, I think he probably would have come to that realization on his own, too. I, I, I feel like, you know, it, as his writing developed and he, he got more nuanced in, in his worldview and in his lyrics, I think that, well... Actually, you know what? I started thinking of songs he wrote in later years, like Let's Impeach the President. Not exactly nuanced in his lyrics. So maybe not. Maybe you're right. Maybe he, he needed that song to really show him that it, it was a really reductive worldview. Because there's the other part of uh, Sweet Home Alabama 2 where he's talking, they're talking about Watergate, which I always thought was such a really smart way of being like, okay, if you're going to show the South at our worst, then let's talk about you. Let's talk about the North and what's going on up there. I'll talk about you guys at your worst right now, too. So it was, it was really... Such a smart song. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. You know, like one story I love, too, about these guys. I don't know if this is true. Have you heard that story about Powderfinger? Oh, yeah, yeah. Cameron Crowe, I think, confirmed it. Yeah, that he wrote Powderfinger for Leonard Skinner. Like, like, what was the deal there? Like, did he actually try to get the song to them? Or, I mean, like, was he, like, like, was he calling Ronnie up? He's like, hey, I just wrote this amazing song, and I want you to play it? I think Cameron Crowe said that he was the go-between, that, that Neil gave Cameron a cassette tape of some demos. Powderfinger was the big one. Sedan Delivery from Russ Never Sleeps and Captain Kennedy, which was, I think, on, what, Hawks and Doves? I think it was Hawks and Doves, uh, was also on it. And he basically wanted Cameron to give the tape to Ronnie to, for consideration for songs recorded for the next Skinner album. Or there was also a rumor that uh, Ronnie Van Zant was working on a solo album, too, right before he died, like very, very early and maybe those would have been considered for a solo album too, but that I don't think that's ever been you know confirmed. But oh, can you imagine if Skinner did Powderfinger? I know, and that would have been such a cool bookend to this to the Sweet Home Alabama story. Oh, man, I know. Um, because you know when I look at these two again, when you look at the broader implications of like what this what this song is and like what these two people represent, you know. There's the reality of like what was going on between the two artists, which, you know, it's funny because like on our show, we usually talk about people that have like long running beefs where there's like a lot going on between them. You know, they're, they're sniping at each other. They're like doing mean Instagram posts about each other. <laughs> they're like, you know, writing songs about each other. Throwing shoes sometimes. Yeah. But like that never really happened with these guys. There was just, you know, Neil Young wrote a couple songs. And Ronnie Van Zant wasn't a fan, so then he wrote an answer record to it. And then it kind of ended in a way. Like, they, you know, Neil could have perpetuated it, but he's like, no, these, the song that you wrote, Sweet Home Alabama, it's an incredible song. I think he even said at one point that, like, I'd rather play Sweet Home Alabama than Southern Man. Yeah. I mean, that you coming know? from Neil Young, that is a hell of a compliment. You know, so, and, and then you have Ronnie Van Zant going in the press and just, just talking up Neil Young about how much he loves Neil Young, wearing Neil Young shirts on album covers, them putting a Neil Young shirt in his own casket, making it perfectly clear that, like, for the people involved, there's not really any conflict. But then there's, like, another reality that's going on outside the band, the cultural reality. And, you know, we talked about how Sweet Home, Al Sweet Home Alabama ends up becoming this huge pop hit. And... I don't think you can downplay the significance of like people from the South latching onto that song as an anthem and latching on to it specifically because they feel like it's sticking it to people from outside the South who look down on them, which is kind of like a long running thing. I think in Southern culture, this sort of chip on the shoulder that like people look down on us, they don't respect us. And we have to strike back somehow. We have to kind of put people in their place. In Sweet Home Alabama, it's like such a great song for that, like if, if, if that is how you already feel. And as Leonard Skinner goes on, and we've talked about this, like, you know, Ronnie Van Zant died in 1977, along with other members of the band, totally changed the look and sound of that band. And you feel like Leonard Skinner, at some point, they kind of go from being this band that is... Uh, articulating something about the South that is complicated, but it's nuanced and it's interesting and it has space for Southern pride, but also critiques of the South in some way, to being something very simplistic and locking more into the sort of the binary relationship that we have in this country between North and South, liberal and conservative, and really playing up the culture war part of it. And circling back to Powderfinger, it just makes me think like, what if... Ronnie Van Zandt had lived and they could have had this reunion doing Powderfinger and showing that maybe we don't have to have these binaries, you know, like we can actually kind of get along and figure out a way to 
be friends and, and to put our differences aside. Uh, I'm not saying that that would have cured the culture war or anything, <laughs> but it would have been an interesting development, I think. It would have made it harder for people to kind of break this down into component parts where it's two forces against each other. Because to me, that's the most fascinating thing about this is that it is that the reality of the actual rivalry, there's really not a rivalry. But there is a rivalry because of what we've all projected onto it over the years. Right. I mean, Sweet Home Alabama, just as a slogan, the last couple decades especially, every ounce of nuance has just been squeezed out of this song. You know, it's like up there with Springsteen's Born in the USA and and even Neil's Rockin' in the Free World is just like being embraced at face value as this like full-throated celebration of the South. You know, I think it's on the uh, Alabama license plate, Sweet Home Alabama at this point, you know, like where if you listen to the song as something that's more satirical or, or even just more, you know, even-handed, I'm not sure if that's necessarily something you want on your state license plates, you know? Right. Or I, yeah, if, if you want to take into account where Ronnie Van Zant was coming from, again, right. a guy who wasn't even from Alabama, right. you know, that in a way, I think he's adopting the voice of a character in that song, um, which is another sort of interesting layer that complicates what that song means. Um but again, it, like sometimes it doesn't matter what the songwriter intended. And I feel like, too, like with Skinnerd, it becomes obscured because, well, first of all, when Ronnie dies, the new front man of that band ends up being his younger brother, Johnny Van Zant, who, with apologies to any Leonard Skinnerd fans out there, I think he's a dullard. I think Johnny Van Zant <laughs> ruined Leonard Skinnerd. And, and he was the big driving force, I think, in sort of simplifying and dumbing down this band. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I've seen interviews with, with, with Johnny where he's speculated about his brother, about like, you know, like, how do you think Ronnie Van Zant would vote if he were still alive today? Mm-hmm. And, and, and being asked this like 20 or 30 years after, uh, his brother died. And of course he says that his brother would probably vote Republican because he votes Republican and he feels like, well, that's probably what my brother would do too. Um, and maybe that that may very well be true. You know, I don't want to wade into the potential politics of a person who has been deceased for several decades. But um, it's always like a sad thing with Skinner. I feel like I don't know. Like, are you a drive-by truckers fan? I I'm, I need to get deeper into them, but I do love Southern rock opera. Incredible yeah, album. Because I feel like that record was the first time I think in a long time where. People were able to talk about Leonard Skinner in a more sort of, again, nuanced way. And I feel like for people of my generation, like that record had a lot to do with, I guess, reclaiming the original spirit of Leonard Skinner. Because like when I was growing up, I mean, they were just the epitome of like a redneck rock band, right? I mean, like, do you remember your first encounter with them? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was Sweet Home Alabama. And it was, you know, I... I I think it was used in like a KFC ad or something like that. Like, no, I remember definitely just taking it at face value until it's really was just learning of their actual supposed friendship through the song. The song that I'm thinking of is is Ronnie and Neil. Uh, yeah, where, the Drive like, by Trucker song. Incredible song. Incredible song that kind of like just mythologizes in this really amazing way their 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 relationship. Yeah, it's a Patterson Hood song, and he and. Patterson in that song, he's like trying to sort of, I think, again, clear up this misconception that I think was much more um, widespread at the time that that record came out, which was 2001. You know, I think people did forget that Neil and Ronnie were friends or that or that they were friendly, at least. And he's writing about this mutual appreciation that they had, because I think for, for someone like Patterson Hood, who, who grew up, you know, in the South, and uh, I think was living in Georgia at the time that that record was made. Uh, I think he probably felt like he was kind of stuck between those two poles, that he liked Ronnie Van Zant as a symbol of like strong Southern masculine pride. But then he also loved Neil Young and the more sort of progressive sensitivity that he signified. Um, but yeah, there's that great song on that record called The Three Alabama, The Three Great Alabama Icons. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that that really kind of like drives home. It's the mythology of it, but I think they also get at a lot of truth. There's that line where he goes like, now Randy Van Zant wasn't from Alabama. He was from Florida, which is true. He was a huge Neil Young fan, 
but in the tradition of Merle Hager writing Oki from Muskogee to tell his dad's point of view for, about the hippies in Vietnam, Ronnie felt that the other side of the story needed to be told. Neil Young always claimed that Sweet Home Alabama was one of his favorite songs. And legend has it that he was an honorary pallbearer at Ronnie's funeral, which I don't think that's true. I, know, I wish it was. I know. I feel like they wouldn't have let Neil Young near that funeral. Like, no. I think <laughs> there were probably like a lot of good old boys who did not like Neil Young uh, in 1977. Uh, and then he says, and then there's the line that Patterson has, the great line about the duality of the Southern thing, which is like, uh, you know, the sort of like the nut graph of that record, the the duality, which again, I think is embodied by Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young. You know, the, the, these two people that appear to be opposites, that the culture is pitting against each other as archetypes of the North and the South and liberals and conservatives and talking about how they're really connected. And um, we don't really talk about people like that anymore. We talk about people being against each other, but not being connected. And I feel like those, those two guys are, um, are such great symbols of that. But, you know, as much as we're talking about Skinner being misunderstood, you know, we've kind of hit on this before. I mean, I feel like Skinner had a lot to do themselves with the band being misunderstood by how they, I think, perverted the band's legacy after Ronnie Van Zant died. Right. There was this really weird thing. Uh, band member Ed King uh, had a blog post in 2009 where he basically walked back essentially everything Ronnie ever said about Sweet Home Alabama. Uh, Ed says, it's not us going boo. It's what the Southern man hears the Northern man say every time the Southern man say in Birmingham, we love the governor. So he's saying that the boos were the Northern people, you know, just yeah. coming out against us. Uh, get it's it? So disappointing. Right. And, and he, Ed goes on and says, we did all that we could do to get Wallace elected. It's not a popular opinion, but Wallace stood for the average white guy in the South. And uh, George Wallace loved Sweet Home Alabama, by the way, and he made the uh, Leonard Skinner honorary members of the state militia and gave them plaques. And Ed says, you know, I still have that plaque here in my office that says I'm an honorary member of the state militia, signed personally by George C. Wallace. And, you know, sure, the man had his flaws, that's his quote, uh, but he spoke for the common man of the South, which is an interesting, uh, I'd say, waffling of the original uh, explanation of the song. Well, and again, like Ed King... He contributed to the music of that song, which, right. as we've said before, "Sweet Home Alabama" kicks ass. kicks ass. I think I think that's un, you know that's inarguable. You know, there's no subjective opinion about this song is objectively awesome musically. So Ed King deserves a salute for that. But he didn't write the lyrics to the song, right? And as you said before, I think that I would, and maybe this is just because I want to believe this. I prefer to accept Ronnie Van Zant's stated interpretation of the song. Like, and, and, and it does not line up with what Ed King said. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, Ronnie is probably more of a reliable narrator because, again, he died so soon after, and the politics changed so much. And just even just like the, the views of the iconography that the band embraced, like the Confederate flag, changed so much between 1975 and 2005 even. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, it almost seems like they're they're... The, the band Leonard Skinner today is leaning more towards the, what their base believes today than what it actually believed 30, 40 years earlier. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of speculating on what a deceased person would do, but you know, I, I think about Tom Petty, who when uh, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers they did their Southern Accents tour in the mid '80s, like they toured with an Ameri with a Confederate flag uh, flying in the background, and. Years later, before Tom died, he gave an interview where he said that he was embarrassed that they did that. And he was like, look, I thought we were flying it as this rebellious thing, as an expression of Southern pride. And I look back on it and I realize I was wrong. Like, we shouldn't have done that. Like, I, I understand, like, how hurtful this symbol is. And I, you know, renounce that we did that back then. And I'd like to think that Ronnie Van Zant would have come to the same conclusion. And did I really. Didn't they say that they were going to stop flying it a couple years ago? Yeah, there was this thing that they were going to stop doing it, and it became this, like, cultural flashpoint with their fans. Like, a lot of people in their fan base reacted as if they were selling out, basically, or that they were caving to, you know, like, the liberal media and, like, liberal forces outside of the South. And I think it really speaks to, like, the kind of fan base that they had cultivated at that point. 
because, uh, like I said before, the band was taken over in the early 80s by Ronnie Van Zandt's younger brother, Johnny. And Johnny is the one who really started pulling them into this more conservative direction. And to me, like, one of the most obvious examples of Johnny going against the example of Ronnie is the 2009 album, God and Guns. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with the album God and Guns? It's pretty on the nose, God and Guns. God and uh, Guns keep us strong. That's what this country was founded on. That's, there you go. He says, well, we might as well give up and run if we let them take away our guns. Which, again, if you listen to the song Saturday Night Special, like in that song, Ronnie Van Zandt is talking about like taking guns and like throwing them in the ocean. Right. You know, like it's a pretty like expl- like it's not one of those songs where you're like, oh, is this like a metaphor for gun control? Is are the are the, are the lyrics vague where you know you can't really tell what he's talking about? No, it's like unequivocally talking about like how guns are meant to kill people and that they're dangerous and that they should be gotten rid of. Handguns um, are made for killing. They ain't no good for nothing else. And if you right. like to drink your whiskey, you might even shoot yourself. So why don't we dump them, people, to the bottom of the sea before some old fool come around here want to shoot either you or me? Yeah, there's like, not, not a lot of gray area there. It's like he is writing a song in response to God and Guns 40 years <laughs> before God and Guns was actually recorded. It's incredible. Um, and then, of course, in 2012, we have the whole Confederate flag thing that you were talking about where— I think it was Gary Rossington gave an interview with CNN where he said, like, we're not going to fly the flag anymore. Like, was it Rossington? Yeah, oh, yeah, it was Rossington. Yeah, and he so, uh, uh, he said, through the years, people like the KKK and skinheads kind of kidnapped the Dixie or Southern flag from its tradition and its heritage of the soldiers. That's what it was about, he said. So he basically said he didn't want to, now that it's been projected with all this hate from from these groups like the KKK and skinheads, he didn't want to project that over to their fans, I think was, was his, his, his statement in CNN. Right. But then he backtracked because all these people freaked out and they're like, oh, thanks, Obama. Now we can't fly the Confederate flag at Skinner concerts. Right. I mean, like, wasn't it like just totally positioned as like them just caving to like crying liberals? Oh, yeah. There were some amazing comments. Good luck with your next release, Sweet Home Massachusetts. I'm sure it'll <laughs> climb the charts with a bullet in Yankee land. They should have taken a name like Obama's politically correct sell your soul, make believe imposters or something. That's, right. that's one right there. Now, I mean, it, and it's interesting. I mean, because we haven't really been talking a whole lot about Neil Young in this episode. I feel like Neil had an interesting period, like during the same time, like where Leonard Skinner, you know, like at the same time that they're putting out God and Guns. Neil Young put out that record, Living With War, that, that 2006 record, where, like you said, he you know, had songs like Let's Impeach the President, and it was a very explicit type political record. And I don't know if you saw this movie, but he, he directed a, a concert film called Deja Vu uh, that was of the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young tour, where they basically played all those Living With War songs. Did you see that movie? I saw it like when it came out, and I remember... It was very one-sided. I feel like it, I mean, I guess he directed it, right? Like, yeah, he, under like Bernard Shakey, which is oh, his yeah. pseudonym for like when he directs films. But yeah, it's an interesting. It's it's interesting how he presents it because as we said before, like Neil Young, he's he he expressed a lot of remorse after writing Southern Man in Alabama and, and essentially conceding the points that Ronnie Van Zant was making in Sweet Home Alabama that he felt that he was being overly simplistic and even condescending. The people in the South, because again, like to to just put racism on people in the South isn't really fair. I mean, Is obviously, accurate, race yeah. exactly. Obviously, racism exists there, but racism exists everywhere in the country. And uh, you know, you could have written about Los Angeles and not just Birmingham if you if you wanted to write maybe a more representative song about American racism. But yeah, when you watch Deja Vu, it's like. Basically, the premise of that movie is that, like, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young are on tour, and they're being very brave playing these protest songs in front of basically babbling yahoos from the South. Like, there's a lot of footage of, like, the band, like, they start, like, they'll play, you know, Teach Your Children, and people go crazy, and then they start playing Let's Impeach the President, and all of a sudden, like, all of these sort of, like, bellicose Southern people like in Atlanta or Texas or wherever it is, start screaming at the band, flipping them off, going crazy. And obviously right into the camera. Screaming right into the camera. And like, you know, obviously that happened. 
it's true, but it's interesting to me that the film really leans on like footage of Southern audiences freaking out. And I don't know, like, I, I mean, I, my assumption is that there were probably people in the audience in every city that they played who didn't like them doing that because there's conservative people everywhere, conservative boomers probably everywhere who didn't like the living with war songs. They might not have liked the living with war songs because they also weren't very good either. I mean, they probably just wanted to hear golden oldies and not uh, these new sort of agitprop Neil Young songs. But in a way it kind of made me think again about the larger cultural battles that have gone on between the groups of people who, project themselves onto Neil Young and Leonard Skinner. You know, and I wrote about this in my book about how, in a way, like, as much as Leonard Skinner was leaning into the biases of their audiences, I wonder, like, to some degree, I feel like that concert movie leans into the biases of Neil Young's audiences a little bit. I mean, do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah. I mean, that album, I, I think, was 99% about the message and 1% about the music. I mean, the songs are objectively bad. I would say, right. you know, I mean, looking for a leader. I mean, there, there's no, you know, they're, they're basically tweets, I feel like, you know, I mean, there, there's not a lot of, you know, melody there, not a lot of nuance there. And it, it's not very artful in any way. It's just purely about getting his political view across, which I mean, in some ways is, is what you expect for somebody as, as, as stubborn headed as Neil Young. But you're right. I think he was catering just as much as Leonard Skinner is. Yeah. And like, you know, as much as I want to laugh at a song like, Gods and Guns, you know, God and Guns, you know, it's a pretty broad song. I mean, you feel like that'd be on South Park or something, like if they were going to be making fun of Leonard Skinner and, you know, me, you know, they, writing this this joke Leonard Skinner song. I mean, there there is a real element of that also for the left on the album Living with War. Like yeah. those songs are just as much as as much preaching to the choir um, as um Leonard Skinner is on their records, and and you know, and I and I do think like that that movie Deja Vu, you know, it really is attempting to tie the Living with War period to like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young's past, like when they were writing songs during the Vietnam era, and the idea is almost to like present them as being this revitalized band because like look at us, we're still political, we're still sticking it to people on the road just like we did back then. I feel like. Yeah, that might be true, but there's just this sort of this the simplification I think of people that goes on in a movie like that that is just sort of sad to me. And it's like maybe this wouldn't have happened if Skinner could have just covered Powderfinger. You know, I'm gonna go back to that. <laughs> that was the big moment we missed, and now we hate each other on the internet. <laughs> We're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch 
listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So this is the part of the episode where we talk about the pro side. Um, of each person, and I, I feel like with Neil Young, it's it's probably easier for both of us to come up with the pro side because I feel like we probably are both bigger Neil Young fans. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it, right, it's not fair because I feel like the golden era of Skinner was really just you know f- five years max, and Neil has just been making vibrant music you know right up through today too so it's just purely just from longer more varied career i think he's up there with dylan as a songwriter i think as a guitarist he shreds harder than anyone in skinner wouldn't you say well yeah i mean he's such an unconventional guitar player whereas like the guys in skinner are like some of the great bluesy rock southern guitar players i mean it's hard to say that anyone treads harder than the dudes in freebird i mean come on it's Mm. freebird but yeah i mean i think I prefer Neil Young ultimately as a guitar player. Yeah, I mean, Neil Young's career, I mean, you compare anyone to his career, short of like a very small number of people like Bob Dylan or something. I mean, and they're going to like not look as good as Neil Young. I mean, he's just had an incredible career. I think also too, if if we're talking about this rivalry specifically, I think the, the great thing about Neil Young is like how cool he was about Sweet Home Alabama. And maybe it's because we've been doing this show for a while here. I'm just so used to people being insulted and immediately attacking. Totally overreacting. (laughs) Overreacting and not conceding that they were ever wrong. This is the only instance I think we've ever had where someone was called out publicly and they said, you know what? You're right. Like, and not only that, your song is better than my song. Like. Which is so weird that it's Neil Young, who seems like the most hot-headed. I mean, I'm thinking of, like, you know, Everybody's Rockin' and all the, like, stuff that he did that was really just albums made purely out of spite. You know, it seems like if anybody was going to take offense to something like this, it would have been him. Which makes it so much cooler that he did have that response. I can see why he would do it, though. I think Neil has always been his own man. And in a way, it's almost the contrarian way to go to (laughs) not get upset about it. You know, And and I think his contrarian side ultimately contributed to it. And I also think that, you know, he could see that they were right, you know, and that Sweet Home Alabama was, like, such a great song and that his songs maybe, like, weren't as good as, like, what they did. So it might have just been, like, the kind of self-awareness that we're not used to experiencing on this show from a major music star. (laughs) So I I really tip my cap to Neil Young for that. Um, Going over to the pro Leonard Skinner side, you know, and we've reiterated this before, but I'll say it again that unequivocally and unapologetically and and inarguably, I love Sweet Home Alabama. I think it kicks ass. And I I, I think you can't argue certainly against the music of that song. It's, It's an incredible rock anthem. And, you know, I think that Van Zandt, Ronnie Van Zandt, I should say, his original point about Neil Young being a little condescending in Southern Man in Alabama was on the mark, you know, like racism isn't just a Southern problem. Uh, it's a it, it's an issue everywhere, and we should all be introspective about it, look into our own hearts and address, you know, the ways that we can all be better people rather than pointing the finger at somebody else. And I got to say, like, this band, you know, it, it really bums me out what happened to them after Ronnie Van Zant died. I, I, I think that, I can't think of, a, like, a better example of a band that really went down the tubes when they lost their original guiding force. And and not only did they go down artistically, but it's like the original vision of of the guy who was in charge, like was just totally perverted and and twisted and, and turned into something that I think you'd probably be embarrassed by if you were still around today. That's what I was gonna ask. You think that it, it, they would have never wound up in God and Guns territory had had Ronnie survived? 
I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think not. I may be over-idealizing Ronnie Van Zant, you know, because, again, I mean, we keep going back to this point. It's like you want to speculate on what he would be like, but he's been dead for, you know, over you – know, I mean, he died the year I was born, you know. So we, we really don't know, but I guess I prefer to believe that Leonard Skinner would have gone on maybe a more progressive path, similar to the Allman Brothers, like mm. what they – what kind of band that they were like as they got older. Well, I always just think of, you know, giving the final line to the, uh, the drive-by truckers, their song Ronnie and Neil, and Neil helped carry Ronnie and his casket to the ground. And in my way of thinking, us Southern men need them both around. I think that's a good right. way to get into the together argument. Yeah, and I think that for me, like, when we talk about these two groups together, and I guess I'm talking more about Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young, um, you know, I go back to the sort of the dual narratives that are going on like you have the relationship between the two guys which really like doesn't even qualify for this show i mean because even though sweet home alabama is like one of the great diss songs of all time like these guys really were not enemies and they were you know, it was a mutual appreciation society um but it's because of the other narrative which is the cultural narrative and the larger story of what music fans have projected onto this onto onto sweet home alabama as a song and this rivalry um, it, it is what makes it a rivalry and it I think kind of dumbs down the reality and it sucks out the, the, the complexities and the nuance and um, it just reduces I think something that's like kind of interesting and great into just another binary and just like another way that people can beat up on each other and, and, and separate each other and it, it's sad to me that like these guys didn't have more of a history because and again, I'm probably being overly optimistic here, but I'd like to think that if Ronnie Van Zant could have stuck around, that him and Neil Young could have been an example of like how people who maybe come from different worlds and see the world differently can be friends and they can find a way to, you know, have common ground and and not be at each other's throats. Um, unfortunately, Ronnie Van Zant died, and because he died, we live in hell. That's my point <laughs> at the end of this podcast. That was when it all started going south, 1977. Yep. I mean, can you, if he'd lived, can you imagine like some incredible like farm aid double bill or something with the two of them together? Oh, man. Yeah, totally. And again, like the powder finger thing, I think would have oh. been incredible. Uh, I think that would have been an awesome thing. Um, it would have changed the world. We'd, we'd all be better off. But, you know, we're stuck in this dimension now. But hopefully someday we'll end up in the other timeline where Ronnie and Neil are going fishing together and, you know. Oh, oh. Shooting the breeze down in Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> we can only hope. Well, Jordan, I just want you to know that unlike Southern Man, I do need you around. <laughs> so I'm glad that we can do this together and talk about these rivalries. Oh, Stephen, I will wear a T-shirt with your face on it any day. Oh, thank you. Even in your casket, I hope. <laughs> I, I really hope for that. Thank you all for listening to Rivals again this week. Uh, we will be back with more Rivals, more Beefs, more Feuds next week. Thanks, everybody. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.